The reading of the scriptures from Genesis chapter 9, reading verses 1 to 17. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, may God give us uh, grace both to read and to hear uh, his word in faith. So I invite you uh, now to hear the word of God. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that it is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The uh, chapter is telling us that um, God has, uh, if you will, hosed the earth down because it was uh, full of lawlessness and wickedness, but now he's drained uh, the swamp. And he's starting over in Noah, who is a type of Adam figure. Uh, and we know this uh, because there is a repetition here that is critical for all of us. Uh, namely, he repeats uh, the commission given to Adam in uh, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. Uh, men have uh, failed. They failed in Genesis 3. They failed in Genesis 6. Uh, there's been an in, unprecedented failure here. Uh, but God is not to be denied. He's going to start over. And he's going to fill the earth. And now his agent to do that is Noah. Uh, in verses 1 to 7, we uh, read that God blesses and commissions Noah. And then in verses 8 to 17, he gives him a sign of his covenant that he will never again destroy the earth with a flood. Uh, so the commission, again, is nothing more than uh, 
Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. If you want to validate this notion, you can certainly uh, turn back to Genesis chapter 1. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's exactly what is occurring here. Genesis chapter 9, verse 7. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's a commission to Noah. It's reminding us that he's another Adamic uh, type of uh, figure. Uh, In verse 7, we have a reminder uh, of another parallel uh, phrase. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. uh, Swarm the earth. New American standard reads, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. So judgment has emptied the earth, and now the commission is to fill it again. By the way, there's an illustration of this in Exodus chapter 1. The children of Israel are swarming over the land. Uh, They are filling the land and multiplying. A new pharaoh comes upon the scene. He's terrified uh, by uh, their swarming and filling the land. And so he institutes um, infanticide to, uh, to kill the children, uh, to slow their population growth. And uh, God uh, rescues uh, Moses. If you will, uh, mother sets him uh, in an ark on a flood. The daughters of Pharaoh um, are the immediate agents to rescue Moses from the flood uh, because the daughters of Pharaoh are wise enough to know you shouldn't be killing babies. And so they take uh, Moses and bring it, uh, him into their, into their home. Uh, here Moses is telling us that uh, Noah's a type of a, a vice regent of God who will become the divine agent uh, to expand and fill the earth with the glory of God. Uh, what is instructive here to me in this commission, whether it be Genesis 1.28 or Genesis uh, 9.1, is that there's no change in the commission. God doesn't let up. God doesn't say, well, uh, let, me, let me rethink my strategy here. Adam and Eve failed. The sons of God failed. And so... I've just got to come up with a different strategy. No, God doesn't change His strategy. He's looking for men who will implement it faithfully. And Noah is now their restart to do just that. And every generation of the church, successive to Noah, is to fill the earth with His glory. God doesn't change. His Word doesn't change. His commission doesn't change. In addition, the dominion over the animal kingdom exercised by Adam is, uh, is now intensified. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 29, the first Adam was given every plant and tree for his provision. And now Genesis chapter 9, verse 3, Noah as a second Adam can also eat of every living creature. With one exception. Verses 46, the animals had to be killed and bled out before they were to be eaten. Uh, there is a similar parallel. It's very interesting, very 
a similar reduplication of this in uh, the early church in Acts chapter 15. Uh, if you want to turn there, uh, as you know, the context is uh, the early Jewish church is very concerned that Gentiles are coming into the church and there's an implicit danger that they will bring their idolatrous practices with them. So there's this great debate. Do we uh, permit the Gentiles to come in? Church has been having that debate in different fashions and form for centuries. There's always newcomers, and do we give them equal status? Always an argument over that. There's a council. That's Acts chapter 15. Council of uh, Jerusalem. And uh, they hear from the apostles. Essentially, it's look, if God can save anybody He wants to. If He saves Gentiles, we should receive them into the church with full equal status. So in Acts chapter uh, 15, they decide to do just that. I mean, how can they not decide? Because God is doing the work. We certainly don't want to resist the work of God. But they do have one exception, Acts chapter 15, verse 20. Uh, Write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. Uh, the context, again, is idolatrous practices. That in their idol worship, uh, they had temple prostitutes and some manner or form, they would... Uh, um, begin to uh, eat uh, animals before they had been killed and bled out. Obviously, essentially very pagan, uh, but that is the nature of idolatry. Uh, it's uh, reduplicated again in verse 29, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, uh, you will do well, farewell. So the Gentiles are just enjoined. Look, you have free access to the church. You have the same status as we have, but you cannot bring idolatry into the church. It's really something that the church ought to be uh, taking heed to today uh, because idolatry takes many forms, but it has no place, whatever its form, in the life of the church. Uh, and again, the reference is to meat sacrificed and the worship of idols and with temple prostitution. Parallel to that, as you know, Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, Daniel is whisked away to Babylon because of idolatrous practices among his countrymen. He's now placed in a pagan kingdom in service to the emperor who himself was a god. Uh, his agents come to Daniel and say, look, uh, here's some food we want you to eat. And Daniel knew that it had been sacrificed in the worship of uh, the gods of Babylon, and he refused. And God took care of him. We have to refuse idolatry. Uh, it's picked up again throughout the Scriptures, but one place, uh, last book of the Bible, uh, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14. They begin to do exactly what was contrary to the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. It's just simply the way of man. We have a way of reverting to idolatry. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, John, the apostle, writing, speaking for Jesus, the Lord of the church, the head of the church, 
I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Where'd that come from? Council of Jerusalem. Uh, it's picked up again in the Revelation 2.20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Context in the early church were the trade guilds. The trade guilds would have uh, these sacrificial feasts in worship of the god of the idol that was the namesake for the trade guild. It's like if you were a welder. You belonged to that trade guild. If you didn't belong to it, you didn't get any work. No one would hire you. Because you didn't worship the god of the welders. And every now and then they would have a convocation and they would... Uh, uh, partake uh, liberally in alcohol. There would be temple prostitutes and they would sacrifice uh, meat uh, in the worship of the idol of the welders. And uh, Jezebel comes into the church, uh, not literally Jezebel, but a prophetess, and says, hey, that's okay. Uh, you, you, you can do those things. No, you can't. <laughs> you can't do those things. You cannot worship God, the one true God, the living God, the only God, and then worship another God. Just an enjoining of idolatry. And we, by the way, are um, have those same injunctions today. Um, I do remind you that idolatry takes many forms in uh, uh, 1 John. Uh, the last verse of 1 John, uh, the gospel there proclaimed by John, his first epistle. Uh, he's uh, correcting them from false theology, false views about Christ. His last verse is very strange. Flee idolatry. It's the first time he mentions idolatry in the entire epistle. In other words, some of them were being tempted to worship false gods. It's important today because false theology is a false God. You preach someone other than Jesus Christ as the God-man who came to take the penalty of our sin upon Himself, uh, you begin to uh, change that immutable theology, you are an idolater. And grave warning falls upon you because God does not deal lightly for those who mess with His only begotten Son. We, uh, we're not like that in the church today. We're, we're progressive. Uh, we're leftward leaning. Well, we are not at Grace Bible Church. Because it's idolatry. And we are enjoined from idolatry. Uh, the other exception um, that's given to Noah in regarding to um, killing and eating 
animal life as provision for food is an intensification on the judgment of homicide. You recall uh, the sermon on Cain? Cain killed his brother, but his life was not taken. Now capital punishment is instituted, and not only instituted, it's mandated. I mean, I understand civil government is always wrestling with this because civil governors oftentimes reject the scriptures. But the scriptural truth regarding homicide is still valid and civil governors ought to take notice of it because it's the word of the Lord that applies to civil governors and every one of them will someday be called into an account before God. Cannot change his word. And the implication is what? The sanctity of life. God creates life. It's sacred. And the greater reason, if you look at Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, very important for the reason of capital punishment, for in the image of God He made man. In other words, stamped upon the soul of every, every human being is the image of God. And you take another man's life, you are marring the very image of God and you are contemptuous of God. It's an insult to God to take the life of another human being because you are uh, messing with the very image of God. If it's sacred to God, it's sacred to us. And regardless of the failure of civil governors, if civil governors don't take revenge, the God of heaven will. Make no mistake, the God of heaven will. Study the Old Testament, it's all about lex talionis, laws of retribution. Uh, you poke a man's eye out, we're going to take your eye out. All that is revoked except capital punishment. Why? Because the image of God is eternal. It's to be respected, the very sanctity of life. A lot of physicians ought to read this text. You commit infanticide. God will come for you. You engage in this practice of uh, helping a young person because they have gender dysphoria. You are marring the very image of God. And He's awake, not asleep. First, I've read, I read in World Magazine last week, People are confused about their identity. What a tragedy. God's not confused. He made us. In His image, He made us. We try to forsake that and change that to our shame. Uh, but certainly, if we begin to mar His image, He will uh, come to us in judgment. Uh, the World Magazine stated something that I'd, I'd never heard before. In fact, I suspect that unless you read that magazine, you never will hear. And that is that 80 to 85% of the young people who struggle over that, time cures them. In other words, they grow up and get over it. But woe to the physician who messes to change them. Because God will come for them. 
because his image is glorious and is to be held sacred. So as, uh, as Noah, uh, the church is to reflect the glory of God's image because we, are, we too are his vice regents on, are to worship him. Because the flood is over, uh, God makes a covenant with him. It's uh, not the first time we read the word covenant. It's in Genesis chapter 6. But he makes a covenant with Noah with a promise never again to destroy the earth with a flood. With a flood. Uh, evidenced in a perpetual sign. Uh, it's an unconditional covenant. It stands today. Uh, and it covers everything that comes out of the ark. And all of their progeny, verse 11, Genesis 9. And God confirms it with a perpetual sign of a bow. We know it today as a rainbow, but the word is literally a bow. The bow of the hunter. The bow of the warrior who strings his bow and pulls an arrow and shoots it. But here... It's a reminder that God is putting his bow away. He's been angry at the earth because they filled it with lawlessness and violence. And he pulls an arrow of a flood out of his quiver and shoots the flood at the earth. And now he's drained the swamp and he promises Noah never again. The perpetual sign is a rainbow signifying peace. It's very interesting to me that the progressives or the left have um, copied this sign. You hear sometimes this phrase, cultural misappropriation. And they use their own word, they use the figure of a rainbow, do they not? Flag of the rainbow? That's God's sign. They've misappropriated it to their shame. Tragedy is their lifestyle unfills the earth. I recently pulled into a parking lot at Epworth to visit my father-in-law. Here was the sign of the rainbow. With the words appended to the sign of the rainbow, I worship nature. Nature is my church. Well and good. It's not a church I would want to belong to when God comes in judgment. Uh, their rainbow, it's not just that it has been culturally misappropriated. It's, it's an empty promise. Because they don't get peace. Isaiah chapter 57 verse 21, the prophet says, there is no peace saith my God to the wicked. Of course, there will never again be a judgment of the flood, but there will be another judgment, a judgment of fire. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7. But the present heavens and earth, by His Word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of people who misappropriate his culture. Literally, the destruction of ungodly men. 
they should come to Christ and sue Him for peace. Jude chapter 1, verse 7, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in the undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. We don't hear those words in the church anymore. We're kind of embarrassed by words of eternal judgment. Well, um, Moses isn't. Peter isn't. Jude isn't. It's our reminder that uh, God has uh, given to us uh, a sign of perpetual peace. And He'll never destroy the earth with a flood again, but He will by fire. He'll hose the world down by fire whenever it reached that trigger point. It's the point of the flood. The earth got so bad, God said, enough. I'm going to string my bow and pull my arrow and destroy it with a flood. That day will come again when He will say, enough. He'll string His bow with fire. It will not be a pleasant time for any who are outside of Jesus Christ or who have played fast and loose with who He is and what He has done. It's the importance of the Gospel, the New Covenant. Christ took the wrath that His people deserved upon Himself. If you will, God fires an arrow of destruction and fire and brimstone at them, and then Christ gets in the way of the arrow and takes the hit for them so that He is punished instead of them. That's the love of God for His people. The mercy of God. If you don't know Him in a personal way, if you don't follow Him as your Savior, that arrow is still coming for you. I can't tell you when. I just know that Peter has told us that day has been reserved for destruction. Compelling notion to flee to Christ because He takes the hit for His people. Makes Him safe from the judgment of God. It's very interesting, this concept of uh, filling the earth, God restarting over, is an imagery that's picked up in terms of uh, the words of our Savior. Um, because He's the last Adam. Uh, when you look at all the, all the men from... We've been studying in Genesis until the last Adam. There's a whole lot of failure. Reminder to me that God God forgives our failures. Um, but the last Adam comes uh, to reconstitute uh, in the gospel uh, his success that is immutable, that will overtake the earth. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 13. Um, because it's a greater fulfillment of uh, the promise of uh, the flood. Uh, Matthew 13.31, the commission given to Noah. Uh, Jesus gives a, a parable uh, to them. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. So a mustard seed is like any old seed, very, very small. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not a gardener. Uh, everything I plant withers and dies, but there are those who are can take something very small, plant it in the ground, and Lo and behold, a beautiful flower. And then many flowers. The mustard seed. Here a man takes it and plants it, sows it in the field, and 
This is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it's larger than the garden plants, and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. You recognize that quotation? This tree fills the earth and the birds come to nest under its branches. It's the life of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4. It's a fake tree. The angel, uh, angel of heaven comes and chops down that tree. Cultures uh, over again try to misappropriate the divine commission, fill the earth with the glory of man. And God comes, sends an angel to chop the tree down. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar, this most powerful man in the world, who himself in Babylonian religion was a god, is turned out to pasture and becomes a cow. It's as if God, God says to Nebuchadnezzar, you want to worship the cows? I'm going to make you one. He goes insane until God restores him. Power of God. So you and I, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, belong to a kingdom that will fill the earth and find shade in the presence of the great God of heaven and protection from the heat of the sun, if you will, and the moon by night. So this is a greater new beginning that the gospel gives to us uh, from the common grace given to all mankind, protection of the flood, now to efficacious grace, sovereign grace. Greater fulfillment, as I've suggested, is in the last Adam, who is Christ. Give you a hint next week, Noah's going to tragically fail. The last Adam's going to come Never fail. Never, never fail. Our Savior only succeeds. He will fill His earth with His eternal dominion. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 is a, a distant echo of Genesis chapter 9 verse 1. God blessed Noah. In Christ, Paul says in Ephesians 1 3, we have in Him every spiritual blessing. You come to Christ, you get every one of His blessings. Nothing is withheld. He holds back nothing from His sons and daughters. Compelling reason to come to Him and flee to Him because He alone is safety and in Him is every blessing. There are no spiritual blessings outside of Him. All the false religions of the world are playing men and women false because they're fake, they're cheap counterfeits that God will never accept. He only accepts the work of His Son done for His people. And we too are cleansed to prepare us for fulfilling uh, our commission. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Another conceptual parallel besides uh, Matthew 13, the allusion to Daniel chapter 4, verse 12. It's in the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me. Where does that come from? Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, the vision of the Son of Man, standing before the Ancient of Days. 
and all authority and dominion is given to the Son of Man. And His dominion will overtake and fill the earth because of who He is. He cannot and will not be denied. And so we are His vice-regents. We're to go forth to teach and to baptize. We're to teach men to keep His commandments. Teach men and women to believe and to repent in Him. And to forsake their false gods and their false idols and their false fake religions. Because there's only safety in Christ. Uh, It's very interesting that in sovereign grace, the church begins to fulfill that dominion. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 12. Obviously, the context is a missionary journey of the Apostle Paul and the first century church. And there is a description of the church that's parallel to the commission given to Noah as well as given to Adam and Eve. Acts chapter 12. Notice the similarity. Uh, verse, verse 24 and 25. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to multiply. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had filled their mission. It's happening now. Instituted by Christ who gives His Word to His apostles. The words grow, multiply, and fill are used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. of Genesis chapter 9. We're to continue the mandate today as Christians. Advancing the Gospel and the spiritual kingdom of God with the knowledge that one day His glory will fill the earth. And we will be a part of it as His sons and daughters. And furthermore, our our new covenant has a sign too. Noah got a rainbow. We get the sign of the bread and the cup. And the ultimate realization uh, that Christ is our peace. God made peace with the world in the days of Noah. He makes peace with us. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Nowhere else. Through Him and His great work for us. Great realization of this in uh, Isaiah chapter 11. Reminder of of uh, God promising the children of Israel indirectly, more majestically, a promise to us. If you look at Isaiah chapter eleven, verse one, and a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from its roots will bear fruit. Reference to our Savior. He comes to affect that and to bear fruit and to grow and to multiply His people. Verses 6-9, to And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little boy will lead them, and the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. In other words, peace, true peace, 
will envelop the universe because of the work of Christ. Echo of this in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. That's our Savior, Christ. Fear and danger obviated forever. May the high metaphor of the child playing with the viper or playing by the den of the cobra is a reminder that God will affect that peace. Because our Savior is the Prince of Peace. The greater reality for you is do you know Him? Do you embrace Him? Do you follow Him? Because He alone is the Prince of Peace. And the Spirit is our down payment that we will get the full-blown reality of Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11. Uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, mailed to heaven, and woe be to anyone who messes with the children of God. So Christ, the last Adam, will succeed when all others have failed. And his success, our success, essence of the gospel. Great reminder of this in the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel chapter 1. The Son of Man, Ezekiel, comes and sees an eternal throne. He sees on the throne the glory of the majesty of God and something else, a rainbow. Because there's peace in the provision of God through Jesus Christ. Uh, distant echo of that in the uh, book of the Revelation, chapter 4, verse 3. Again, there's a vision of the majesty of the greatness of the Savior. And he who was sitting on the throne was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. That's our sign. That rainbow is our sign that the judgment of fire will not get us because we're standing in Christ where the fire has already burned. And thank God for His provision. That in Christ, righteousness and peace have kissed in Him. And I trust you know Him upon whom the Father has kissed in righteousness and peace.